This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. Just a, a forewarning, right? Uh, I think I see a good exodus of the, the youths, the youngers. Um, but we will be talking today about God's design for, for sex. Um, and so um, I, I, I totally, statistics say that um, by, by fourth grade, um, most, most children have heard and know about, have been exposed to uh, the topic of, I'm waiting to see, okay, have been exposed to the topic of, uh, of sex and um, really, uh, it, sadly, to porn and to um, many images and um, really teachings that are contrary to, to God's words. And so uh, I was a, a former student pastor before this, and I had a, did a series similar, and I sat down with parents, and they were like, oh, we don't want to awaken love before it's ready. And I was like, oh, parents, it's already awakened. <laughs> like you are, I promise you, um, it is probably already awakened. Uh, and so uh, we wanted to, we've been, if you're new to Austin Life, we are nearing the end. Um, I think we'll have one more message less, uh, next week that's less specific on a topic, but more uh, just holistically talking about God's uh, really design for redemption uh, and restoration uh, that, that there's always hope uh, when, when it comes to uh, who we are, our purpose, our identity, our sexuality, our gender, all of that. Like, that, that God is a God of, of reconciliation and restoration. And so, um, and then after that, we'll spend the rest of the summer kind of going through Psalms, uh, just different Psalms, uh, into the fall, in which I'm pretty certain we will go through Habakkuk um, and then Philippians. Uh, and so that'll give us a little bit of Old Testament. Um, back into the New Testament, uh, and th- that's probably the route that we'll go through the rest of, of the year to give you a heads up there. Um, but today, we want to finish asking the question on uh, God's design around the topic of sex. What is God's design for, for sex? Um, <clears throat> Stephanie and I got engaged near the end of her sophomore year of college. Uh, we'd been dating at that point for like 14 years. Um, kidding, we, she was 15 when we met, and so we've been dating for a handful of years at that point. But uh, we got engaged at the end of her sophomore year of college. Um, she was going to graduate a year early, and so we were going to be engaged through her junior year and then get married uh, right after that. So uh, in her final semester in college, she decided she was going to learn to play the guitar. I had taught myself to play the guitar in college, and she was like, I'm going to learn too. And I said, no, you aren't. <laughs> um, and, and not because, that was not me telling her that. Sorry, that sounded like I was commanding her. I was just saying, babe, there's so much going on. Like, right, you're planning a wedding. You're, you're taking, I don't know, 17 hours in order to graduate early, right? There's so much going on. Like, I, come on, that's not realistic. You're not really gonna learn. The, and she wasn't really that interested. Um, and so I was like, I, I don't think you will. And she was like, oh, I, I guarantee you, I promise you, I will learn the guitar. And I was like, okay, I'll make a bet with you. She was like, let's go. I said, if you learn the guitar before our, our wedding, I don't know if I said that, that was her goal. Like before our wedding, she was gonna learn the guitar. I was like, if you learn the guitar, then I, I'll, you will get, and I honestly don't remember what she was gonna get because I was like, it doesn't matter. It's not gonna happen. So I didn't even think about it. But I said, if you don't learn how to play the guitar before our wedding, then we will have sex three times a day for the first month of our marriage. Um, and why are you looking at me like that? I was serious. I legit thought that would be a, I was like, this is going to be amazing. Um, I really thought that was possible. And like, that I'd be up for that, you know? Um, And I thought she'd be up for that, right? Like, I mean, come on, this is, anyways. um, So I tell you that embarrassing story because you know, newsflash, if you're thinking like, that sounds like a great idea, it's not possible. Like, it's just not going to happen. Um, not even close to, to realistic. But I genuinely, hey, babe, welcome in. Um, I was just talking about how I, we made the bet of you learning a guitar and that if you didn't, we'd have sex three times a day for the first month of our marriage. But, but I was serious, wasn't I? Like I, th- I thought that would, but that just, I just tell you that to tell you, I knew nothing of, of, of sex. 
Like, I, 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 it was never talked about growing up. Um, I, I grew up in the church. It was always very, like, hush-hush. Like, you'd be like, oh, you know, sex. Like, you whisper the word um, or something, right? Everyone had, like, code words for the anatomy and things, you know? Like, oh, that's your front hiney. And it's like, what? Like, you know, like, all these different things. And it was just, like, no one... No one openly talked about it. If it was talked about in the church, it was like, no, don't do it until you're married and enjoy, right? And so you just have like this onslaught of like, this is bad, 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 bad. But apparently people do it when they're married, but we don't talk about that. Like we don't talk about what that's like or God's design for it. Um, if it wasn't talked, if I heard about it outside of the church, it was from the experts um, that were my buddies um, right? And, and so I, I, I learned like slang or, or jokes or jargons. Like I remember in middle school talking about things, having no clue what I was talking about, right? But that's what you do. You hear words, you see things. I was heavily influenced by media and I'm not even talking porn at that time, right? I'm just talking, you know, what you see in Dawson's Creek. Anybody Dawson's Creek watchers? Oh, there we go. We got one here. <laughs> Me and you, Michael. Me and you watch Dawson's Creek. Awesome. Um, you know, but it was like, Everybody is, is doing this and it's amazing every single time. Like there's no pain, there's no, you know, uh, you know hurt feelings, there's no conflict. Like everybody climaxes at the same time, every time, right? There's like no one talked about it in a realistic way. And so I thought, great, we will have sex three times a day for the first month. When you don't learn, I genuinely thought that was possible because no one talked about it. No, no one gave me a real vision and understanding of, of, of what it was. Now, every single person throughout history is being educated when it comes to sex in some way, shape, form, or fashion, right? Whether it's from parents, whether it's from school, whether it's from church, whether it's from friends, whether it's from media, the predominant way that people today are educated is through porn, which is ravishing our society. And that's not even a church thing. That is secularly proven that it is like completely destroying the fundamental makeup of our brain. It's so dadgum addictive. This is later in the sermon. I'm already there. Shoot. It's so dadgum addictive and present at the flip of a thumb to anyone and it is biologically, fundamentally changing the makeup of our brains so that we see people as a means to our end for sexual gratification. I listened to this sermon this week, and he said, we have a generation whose brains are marinating in porn. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's a graphic and horrifying vision. And it's true. That, that's the primary way that people are being educated today. It's some version of pornographic material very little even within the church is, church is taught about God's design for sex very little sex we view in culture um, really you've got predominantly two ends of a spectrum right on one end you've got like sex is viewed negatively like it's, you know, and this is most, um, mostly in the church and in Christian settings, right? We take Bible verses that talk about sexual immorality and we, we harp on those, we emphasize on those, right? And we have this like negative, hey, don't do it. Don't do it until you're married. It's bad, it's bad. I mean, it's like the worst of all sins. I grew up thinking like, oh my gosh, if you have sex before you're married, whew. you know, it was just like this big, the biggest sin of all. Right, and we had this, this just negative view of it, which led to a ton of guilt and shame, fear to talk about it and be honest, embarrassment. It was not a positive outcome. On the other side, which is where more so I think we, we live in a world today, is the um, embrace self. You are free. It is your right to pursue your sexual desires and expressions with whoever, whenever, however. As long as there's consent, it's all good. And that's more so the culture that you all know we live in. Right? We're, it, is, it is everywhere. It's just a bio, like it's, it's no big deal. It's just biology. It's just nature. But don't for a second think you can tell me how to do it, because it is a big deal, right? We want to have this, it's not a big deal, and yet in our souls, we know it's a big deal. Science, again, has proven it's a big deal, 
right? That, that hormones are released that biologically connect us with a person when we engage in sexual activity. That's not like, ah, maybe you feel connected to a person. No, no, science has proven that oxytocin and dopamine, it is like a, an addictive drug. That literally the same uh, you know, hormones and dopamine released when you take a drug is released when it comes to sexual encounters. And so we, we, our culture wants to act like it's no big deal, right? It's just the human body, we can do whatever, and yet we know in our soul that's not true. We, we know there's, there's more to it. But that's predominantly the world we live in, right? Embrace self, do whatever you want. As long as there's consent, you're, you're free. Hook up with whoever, act out with whoever, have fun, we're just having fun. And that is the lie that the devil wants us to believe. Yeah, we're just having fun. We're just not hurting anybody. And it's a lie. It's a lie. So rather than talking about what sex is not, I want to spend more time talking about what is, what is God's design for sex. Now, wh- wh- what, is, what does the Bible have to say about it? So, uh, Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5, we've already read these passages, but that's where we're going to, to spend uh, the bulk of our time today, and a little bit in 1 Corinthians 7. So, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Over in Ephesians Paul, in speaking about marriage, concludes his discourse by repeating what was written in Genesis 2, by going back to the beginning, to God's design. He says in verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let's, let's pray over God's word. God, we ask that you would speak to us through your word. That you, your voice would um, block out distraction and noise and God, perhaps even uh, just walls that we have built up over the years and that you would break through and bring truth and light and freedom uh, to our, our minds and our hearts and our souls and our bodies uh, when it comes to sex. We pray this and believe this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So God's, God's design for sex, best I can tell from Scripture, is for sex to be a good and pleasurable expression and renewal of covenant love between husband and wife. I believe from Scripture, and then we'll talk more about this, that God's design for sex is to be a good and pleasurable expression and, and, and a reminder even of covenant love between a husband and, and wife. So I just want to break that apart a little bit. And, and I want to start with uh, the, the title of the sermon, God's Design for Sex. Like, let's start with where does sex come from, right? It, it, it comes from, from God. God created it. God designed sex, Right? According to Genesis 2, who was it that made man? Not a trick question. God, right? God, God made man. Who made woman? God. And nowhere do we see like that their physical sexual anatomy formed later, like when God wasn't looking or took a break or something, right? And it's like, oh my gosh, what is, what is this? 
How did, how did, how did that happen? Right, and, and I say that in jest because we're so embarrassed to talk about it, yet God created it. Like God designed it. If God's, if God's creating something, we don't need to be embarrassed of it. We don't know let some, the world tell us how to think about it. No, we just say, all right, God's not embarrassed or ashamed of the human body. Why, why would we be embarrassed to talk about the fact that, that God designed us? Right? It was God who brought man and woman to, to be together in marriage. It was God who commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. Right? That, that again was not one of those things where it's like, oh no, what are they doing? Why are their lips touching? Why is their body t- Why are they enjoying that? Right? No, no. Like, let's, this is God's design. This is God's creation on purpose. It wasn't some like cleanup he had to, you know, rework like, oh no, what do we do now with this? Let's spin it so that it's okay. No, no, like he formed the male anatomy to fit with the female anatomy. That was on purpose. He formed the way that contraception would occur. He formed the way that there would be pleasure. He formed the way that there would be an orgasm. He formed the way that there would be sensations felt when human flesh would touch. We don't have to say, oh, well, the world gets a monopoly on this. No, this is God's design. Do, do you, anyone feel a little bit cringy right now as we're talking about this? Why? You know who's not cringy? Everyone else. Literally, as they will walk the red carpet in a see-through fishnet onesie, showing everything. And we're afraid to talk about it in the church that God created. They'll sing songs that should embarrass us. They should be embarrassed to sing about. And yet we're afraid to talk that God created sex. Our, our education systems will put out curriculum for our kindergartners and first graders and second graders and third graders to talk about, and yet the church is, let's whisper. Right? Like, no, th- this is God's design. This is his creation. We don't need to be embarrassed to talk about it. We don't need to be ashamed to talk about it. Because if we are not, I pr- we are being educated. We're being formed by lies that are dictating how we then look to God's design and be embarrassed to talk about God's design. Like I said, I, I grew up in the church. The only thing I thought about sex was negative. No one ever told me, hey, guess what? God created your body God created your hormones. God created puberty. God created these desires. No one ever talked to me about that from a good side of things. So I grow up with the church giving me all the negative side of it and the world spinning me some stupid lie of how everyone's doing it and it's harmless and do whatever you want. And for the love of God, we need to have truth taught. We need to talk about it. We need to speak openly and candidly. The percentage of people who are addicted to porn, who are addicted to impure ways of sex, and part of the reason we stay stuck there is because we're so embarrassed to be honest and talk about it. Come on, y'all. If we were to just like anonymously write things down and throw it out on, on the floor, the I mean, the number of us that would have things to put on the floor. And yet we're so embarrassed and afraid to talk about it, and so we just stay stuck. This is God's design. It's his. He created sex. Not, not the devil, not some random idea. So let's look to him for his design. Let's trust his way. So this is God's design. It's to be between a husband and a wife exclusively. Again, culture will tell us ad nauseum 
that sex is your right, your privilege, your choice as a, as a human being to do with whoever, whenever, however you want. And, I mean, data and history has proven that doesn't go well. But, but God has designed, he's told us that his design is, is for it to be between m- husband and wife. And I want to talk about why. Like, we could just say, again, hey, if God says it, he's the king. You are either the king and you get to make the rules or you submit to a king. There's no like, hey, I submit to you as king, but I also make these rules. That's not how it works. And so if he wanted to say, hey, it's between husband and wife, into discussion, that's it. But he gives us reasons why it is meant to be between a husband and wife. And the reason is that it is an expression of covenant love, of covenant oneness, and a reminder, renewal within a husband and wife of the covenant they made with one another. The first thing we see is that sex is meant to be the expression, the physical representation of the hold fast covenant. Right, so if we're in Genesis 2, which is God's design, which Paul reiterates, which Jesus reiterates in Matthew, or Mark 10, Matthew 19, that Jesus goes back to this design for marriage. What does he say? He says that the husband... <clears throat> That the, the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Hold fast to his wife. We talked about that last week. That word is literally means to be permanently glued and cemented together to another. That, that a marriage, a husband holding fast to his wife, the wife holding fast to her husband, are two people committing in covenant to be united as one for the rest of life. It's, I use this illustration of this tabletop. <clears throat> I don't think you can see it from there, but there's three pieces of wood, but it's one tabletop because they have been joined, they've been permanently glued together. If you take apart the wood, you don't have a clean break, right? You don't have what it, what it was beforehand. No, because it's meant to be glued together to hold fast to one another, to stay united together as one, right? God designed husband and wife to hold fast to one another to be united together as one. And then what does it say? And they shall become future indicative tense, one flesh. That when a husband and wife stand before God and make a promise to be together and to unite together as one for the rest of life, then they shall express the physical representation of that oneness through sex. That sex is the physical picture the physical representation of a covenant of love made together two committing to be one now expressing their oneness as the two become one in sex this is god's design sex is a good gift meant to be a reflection a picture of the covenant love of oneness we can have sex outside of our spouse but but the Bible, it, it doesn't make sense to the Bible. It doesn't make sense to the picture. It's like taking, you know, 20 different puzzles and throwing all the pieces on there, and the pieces may fit together, but when you look at the picture, you're like, that doesn't make sense. That, that's, that's not how it's supposed to go. And, and God's like, well, okay, yeah, physically, we can have sex with other people, but his design is that it is the physical representation of the covenant love committed to between one man and one woman for the rest of life. Right, again, that, that's how he designed it to be that picture. To be that image, that representation of oneness. But on a grander scale, not only is it an expression between husband and wife, it's the expression, it's the picture of God's covenant love for you and me. Right, that's what Paul said in Ephesians 5. Right, when he quoted Genesis that a man leaves his father and mother commits to his wife, holds fast to his wife, unifies with her in covenant love, and then the two shall become one flesh. Again, future indicative. The two take the physical representation of the covenant they made together as husband and wife. And he says in verse 32, this mystery, this mystery uh, of two becoming one is profound because it is meant to tell the story, to paint the picture of Christ's love for his church. When, when we trust Christ, 
the Bible says that we become a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. For anyone who's in Christ, you're a new creation. Well, how, how, how do we become new when we trust Christ? Well, the Bible says that our record of debt is forgiven and we are given his spirit to come and dwell in us. There is fundamentally something different about us and it's the spirit of God dwelling in us, becoming one with us. You can't come in here and pull the spirit out of me, right? We're, we're immersed, enmeshed as one unit. Now, here's the great thing about that and what sets God apart from every other God in the history of the world is that once I'm in Christ, I don't have to earn keeping that relationship. I am forever united as his, Right? I, I don't have to, God's not sitting there on my bad days and going, well, there, there's, there's better people than you. I'm gonna move on, right? Christ is exclusively faithful to his bride. Christ the groom is exclusively faithful to his one bride. God will never leave us or forsake us. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Right, that is a foundational truth of our God that is unique from any other faith or religion is that by trusting in him, when, when he gives me my faith, I am forever united with him in covenant love and there's nothing I can do to undo that. He will never love me more or less because of my good days or my bad days. He is exclusively faithful to me. He's exclusively faithful to you in richer or poor, in the good or the bad, in sickness or in health. And that gives us a security and a confidence. It changes us from the inside out to want to follow him because of that exclusive faithfulness that he gives us. And Paul says, here's the mystery of your marriage. When you commit to one another and when you become one flesh, you become a picture of that exclusive faithfulness of God. You become a living testimony that I am with this person in sickness or in health for richer or poor in the good days or the bad. I choose to commit to this person exclusively for the rest of my life. And that is meant to tell the story of how God commits to us exclusively and unites with us as one by his Holy Spirit. When we wait until we're married, whether that's that you're a virgin until you're married, or there's a renewal of commitment that from this point forward, I will be exclusive to my future spouse alone. It is a picture of, of faithfulness, even pre-faithfulness that we see in God for us. It's different, it's unique, it's set apart from the world, it's holy. When as husband and wife, we promise and commit to be sexually faithful to only that person, it is a picture of exclusive faithfulness. Just as God is exclusively faithful to us. There's few things that are more disorienting, soul-wrenching, and destructive than infidelity. What if God was routinely unfaithful with us based on how we were measuring up as his bride? Ah, well, he's living up to it, so I'll be faithful. She's doing a good job here, so I'll be faithful. That's not who God is. That's not who God is. And so God calls us to commit, to unite as one with our spouse both in covenant and in physical representation of that covenant in sex as a picture of God's exclusive faithfulness to you and to me. Th that's a much greater story than just saying, hey, wait until you're married. Hey, hey don't, don't let your eyes wander from your spouse. Don't let your desires and temptations, don't, don't flirt with someone else. When we say, hey, we're, we're picturing the exclusive love and faithfulness that God has for us in the way that we exclusively love our spouse, whether we're actively married or one day will be married, that's a much better and bigger story than, hey, don't. Stop it. Clean up your act. Which again, God could say, 
don't stop it clean up your act and he's king but he gives us a grand story we're part of his picture sex is the expression it's the representation of the covenant love that a husband and wife gives to one another I commit to be yours and yours alone and now we are sexually faithful to you and to you alone it's that picture of of covenant love it's also the picture of God's covenant love for us it tells a much bigger story than just do I don't I with who Sex is also um, a reminder, a renewal between husband and wife of that covenant love, right? If it's just meant to to be a picture, right? If you're just meant to put a a puzzle together, well, maybe you just do that once and you're done, right? Maybe it's just a one and done uh, type thing. But that's not what we get in 1 Corinthians 7. All right, so if you look in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 5. Paul says now concerning the matters about which you wrote it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman but because of the temptation to sexual immorality each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband for the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul gives commands in Scripture for husband and wife to have sex and to have sex regularly. Right? This is a command from Scripture. That is to be an ongoing reminder and renewal of that covenant together. Hey, we committed to be one. We come together to physically express that oneness. We promise to be exclusively faithful. We come together to renew that exclusive faithful promise that we made with one another. There's a, the, de- the devil wants to steal, kill, and destroy absolutely wants to to rob of God's glory and since the devil can't get to God he tried that once and it didn't go so well Um, and so since he can't actually defeat God his aim his focus shifts to us right God's primary his prized creation God's glory on earth through you and me that's the way that Satan wants to go after God And so Jesus says the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to rob from from God's glory in our lives. He wants to destroy the representation, the picture, the image of God in our lives. He wants to mar it and twist it and distort it. Now, we we know, I mean, we see this in, in Genesis 3, right? When he comes to do that with Adam and Eve, he doesn't roll in there and be like, hey, Eve, idea, let's just overthrow God. Let's just rebel against God. Let's just destroy everything. No, he comes in subtly, and he whispers, it's like, ah, you know, maybe, perhaps, perhaps God's holding out on you, perhaps this is okay, perhaps this is better, it's really not that big a deal, you're not hurting anyone else, right, your husband Adam agrees, it's okay, it's this subtle Attempt to destroy the image of God in our lives. That is the aim for the de- of the devil for you, is to destroy the image of God in your life. And so if marriages, if sex, is created to be a picture of God's exclusive faithful covenant with you and me, then it makes sense the devil's going to seek to destroy that image in our marriages and in our sexuality. He's going to attempt to create divisiveness He's going to attempt to create discord and disharmony to tear apart the covenant oneness because it's a poor picture of the covenant oneness of God. And and so Paul says, hey, to remind yourself of that covenant, to be renewed of that covenant with one another, engage in sex. Practice that covenant renewal, that reminder that you are set apart for one another and no one else. Practice that regularly. This is not a new idea to remind ourselves of the the covenant, the promises that we made. Look, we're forgetful people, right? We see that from the Old Testament on. 
The number of times where God's like, hey, don't forget. And we're like, we're not gonna forget. And then we turn the corner and what do we do? We forget. This is what the Lord's Supper is. It's a reminder to our minds and to our hearts and to our bodies that, that it is only by the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that our sins are forgiven and that by eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood, by trusting him, we have surrendered our lives to him. Now, if you have come and taken the Lord's Supper, my guess is that you haven't like forgotten that Jesus died for you and forgave your sins and given you new life, but my guess is also that multiple times throughout the week, you've kind of forgotten that Jesus died for you and forgave your sins. You, you pick back up that guilt and you forget, no, no, that guilt is paid for, right? You, you go grab that, that temptation, that sin, forgetting that, no, no, this is not what I've called to. This is not what I've surrendered to. This is not what I've submitted to. We haven't like completely forgotten but in that moment, we've kind of moved the cross of Christ over here, and now it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. Does that make sense? And so the Lord's Supper is meant, Jesus says, do this often in remembrance of me. Come and eat and drink as a reminder that it was my body broken and my blood poured out because of your dadgum sin. But it's also my resurrection that gives you freedom to not live in that come and eat and drink and allow that practice, that tangible expression when you put the bread the cracker in your mouth and you crush it and you grind it and it's just fractured as a reminder that Jesus' body was crushed and fractured and, and broken down for you and me. Right? We're, we're called to regularly remember what Christ has done to recenter and to refocus, to renew our covenant with Him. And that's what Paul is saying we get with sex is a regular reminder. When the world wants to tempt us to, to look over here, to spend time with this person that's giving us attention, to let our mind wander with these images that we're trying to break free from. To, to, to not reflect the love of God, right? When, when that's what, just the noisiness and the busyness and the onslaught of everything else is trying to pull us away from, God says, hey, here, here is your reminder of your covenant that you made with your spouse to remember that y'all, you're, you're one. You're, you're, you're on a journey of a bigger story. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. And just like Paul says, hey, don't come to this table haphazardly. Don't, don't come to this table holding on to your sin, thinking that, man, I get Jesus and my sin. What an insult to the cross of Christ. What an insult to say, hey, Jesus, my sin put you there, and I'm gonna come celebrate your broken body and shed blood, but I'm gonna hold on to this sin. Right? Paul says, don't, don't, don't dare. Don't do it. And it's the same thing with sex. Don't dare come and insult the covenant of the promise that we have made in faithfulness with one another while bringing sin into the picture. It is a holy and sacred reminder and renewal of the covenant that we made with God and with one another. There's far more than just physical mechanics involved. There's emotion and spiritual elements of what God has designed sex to be the beautiful act, however frequent it happens, is meant to be a reminder and renewal of the covenant faithfulness that a husband and wife has made to forever be one, just like God has made to us. That when united with him, we are forever his. One, he will never leave us or forsake us or move on to other lovers. So sex is... God's design between husband and wife to be an expression and a reminder of covenant love. We wait until we're married so that we can live in God's design for sex. We practice it within our marriage to live within God's design for sex. But it's also a pleasurable gift that God has given. It's not to be overlooked. Right? Sex is meant to be pleasurable. Now, I know that for many, 
sex is anything but pleasurable. I, I know that for many, there's physical pain associated with it. And, and, and that's only something, honestly, I'm, I'm relatively new to learning about, right? Is, is how much pain can go along with it. That there's, you know, as we talked about earlier, there's, there's intersex conditions and there's challenges with it. And I plead with you, don't be embarrassed. And I also plead with you that if someone opens up about that, don't be a, a jerk, right? Be, receive that caringly, right? D don't be like, <gasps> you know, like, no, no. If someone's gonna, you know, pull back the curtain and be vulnerable with you, man, wrap them up and receive that with, with confidence and with care. Right? So I know that sex is not always pleasurable. I know that there's abuse that runs with sex. I know there's trauma that runs with sex. I know that there's past mistakes that runs with sex. And we can't just immediately go, I'm done with that. That runs deep. But there is freedom. There is healing. There is life that can be found in it. And God's design with it. But, but God's design before sin enters the world is that sex would be pleasurable. We, we, we see that, I think, for, for two reasons. One that's how God designed it. I mean, th th there's, a, there's a lot of the physical body, the human anatomy, that is just dadgum pleasurable. Right? It's just, it is. And, and when you love someone and you give them a gift, what, what do you love most? When they enjoy the gift, right? When they're like, this is great. I love this gift. Thank you so much. Right? God delights in seeing his children enjoy the gift of sexual pleasure within the context of marriage, within the context of his design. That's not an accident that he created this, right? Proverbs, it's, it's in the Bible. We don't need to be embarrassed to talk about this. Proverbs 5, verses 18 through 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That sounds like a lot of pleasure, right? Like let, let, her, let her breasts delight you. Be intoxicated with her love. You, you want to see more of God's design for pleasure? Go read the book of Song of Solomon. I started reading over verses again, and I was like, oh my gosh, these are, these are saucy. <laughs> I... It's not even joking. And it's in the Bible, y'all. Like, we don't have to be embarrassed or ashamed that God created sex to be pleasurable, to enjoy it. It's, it's, the, it's the devil that has sought to rob from that and to distort and to entice us to seek pleasure in something that is a, a broken cistern that we pour water into and it leaks out and we wonder why is this so empty and dry why is this so empty and dry because we're trying to be filled in places that will never satisfy it's maddening it'll drive us nuts but sex is also pleasurable because it is meant to be a way where we give pleasure to another Right, we reflect Jesus who came to bring us pleasure. Right, Jesus said in John 10, well, let's just, let me read this. Let me go here and then we'll, Romans 15. Romans 15, verses two through three. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Right? If Christ's aim was to please himself, he is not going to the cross. Right? If Christ's aim is to please himself, he's probably not leaving heaven to come and to live among us as a servant to us. But Christ's aim was to please his father by pleasing us. Right? Mark 10 says that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus did not come in, in 2 Corinthians 8 to hold on to his wealth, but to give us his wealth. That's not like money. He's just saying we were poor, he was rich. He exchanged that and gave us his wealth and took on our poverty. Right? John 10, Jesus came to bring us abundant life. 
Philippians 2, Jesus lowered himself in order to lift us up, to prefer and to, to elevate us. Jesus' aim was not his own self-pleasure. Jesus' aim was to give pleasure to us. Right, to give us abundant life, the blessed, happy life in the presence of God. Let me be clear, right? The happiness and fullness of life is in the presence of God. Right? He came to bring us the fullness of life. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul instructs us, husbands, your body is not your own. Give it to your wife. Wives, your body is not your own. Give it to your husband so that you may please them with their conjugal rights and, and desires. Right, that, that in giving sex to my spouse, if my focus and heart and motivation is to please her, if my thoughts are how can I satisfy her sexually, that I become more like Jesus whose thoughts are how can I please? How can I serve? How can I elevate? How can I lift up? How can I put the other ahead of myself? When my spouse thinks of me and thinks, how can I please my husband sexually? How can I give him pleasure? How can I satisfy him? She becomes more like Jesus, thinking, how can I please the other? How can I give satisfaction to the other? The world has taught us to be incredibly selfish when it comes to sex. And the Bible invites us to be selfless, to give ourselves away. To not ask, what can I get? But rather, what can I give? And in God's ideal world, which we're all a work in progress, when both spouses are doing that, guess what? Both are going to be satisfied. Bo both are going to be pleased. Both are going to enjoy the gifts that God has given. And so we, we act in a way that reflects the self-giving of Jesus. Right? We're, we're spouses. We're, you know what? If you're not married... And, and you're wanting to, to wait to share that covenant expression with your spouse, right? That we, we wait to give that pleasure to our covenant spouse. Spouses where we, we think, man, when, how, how can I be pleased sexually, but how can I give pleasure to my spouse? It reflects the humility, the selfless giving of Jesus who came not to please himself, but to please, to build up his neighbor. There's, there's such a greater picture of God's design for sex than the world has to offer. The last thing we see about sex is that it is good. That it is a part of God's good design. If you go back to Genesis 2 again, right, it's, it says in 24 and 25, a man leaves his father and mother, holds fast to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The end of chapter one says God saw everything that he had made. He, he saw the naked man, the naked woman. He saw their marriage. He saw them sexually becoming one flesh. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Enjoyable, life-giving sex between husband and wife is very good. It's God's design. It's God's picture for sexuality. It's, it's good. It's part of his creation. Again, I think that we feel like God is repressive when it comes to sex. Like, oh, we can't, we can't talk about it. We can't celebrate the gift of it. And God just said it's very good. It's not dirty or gross. It's not casual or lighthearted. It's a good, beautiful gift. The question that comes down to it a lot of times is, do we trust his design? Or is there going to come the point where we dig our heels in and say, I'm going to go after my way. I'm going to choose to pursue sexuality my way. I can't imagine that abstaining is better. I can't imagine that, that being faithful and, and waiting for my spouse is, is better. I can't imagine that, that just being exclusive within my, my, my marriage is better. Like the, the temptation that will come our way is in some form or fashion to trust that what, what makes sense to our logic or the world is better than what God tells us. And 
I plead with you as I believe God pleads with you to trust, to trust him. To trust that his ways are better. It tells a better story. It's better for you. So just a couple quick things, bef- you know, that I-, I wanted to make sure we tackle before we, we wrap up. W- what about porn? <laughs> Got it in the back. <laughs> Anybody watch the HBO, The Last of Us? I just need to know if there's anybody that's going to track with me here. Okay, four of us, great. Um, play, it's a game? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm sorry. The concept, right, is that th- there is a uh, virus, a bacteria, that, that infects a person and then spreads via biting contact, um, spreads and basically destroys the whole world. That is porn. It, it is a insidious virus that has no thought or concern for your well-being or the well-being of your spouse or the well-being of your kids or the well-being of those who are manipulated and abused and taken advantage of. It's one thought is greed and power and it is fundamentally biologically transforming our brain. It, it is altering our prefrontal cortex the part of our brain that has breaks that says this is dumb it is eroding that away so that there are less and less and less and less neural breaks and more and more and more and more sexual depravity and abuse and wickedness and the addictive power runs deep So what's my hope in saying this? If you've not, if you're free from it, flee from sexual immorality. Don't give it the power that it has. If you are battling it, put it to death. Do whatever it takes to put it to death. Proverbs says, can a man hold fire close to his chest and not get burned? We want to think, oh, I can, I can keep everything accessible and I'll just have the willpower. We don't. We don't. Put it, put it to death. Do whatever it takes. If you are buried beneath it and don't even know how to see the light of day, then let's work together to find freedom. There is hope and there is freedom. But we're not going to dig ourselves out of that hole alone. But, but I say this knowing the stats. That men and women in this room, the majority of, of us all struggle at some level with it. So let's fight it together. Don't stay, don't try to dig yourself out of that hole alone. We got, we got to protect our kids together. Listen, you don't have to go looking for it. It'll come to you. I mean, how many of you have gotten woken up with a random text message link that you're like, what's this? Ho! Oh. You know? You don't have to go looking for it. You have to be open and honest and fight it together because it will, it will destroy and is destroying What about masturbation? Is it possible to masturbate in a godly way? I would say if within a marriage and mutual gratification within a spouse, with with spouses, other than that, it teaches self-expression of sexuality. And sex is never meant to be a sexual end, I mean a selfish end. It is meant to be a self-giving expression Masturbation teaches me how to go and get my own pleasure my own way and to not be mindful of others. I don't have to be intentionally opposed to others, but it's teaching my brain and my body to be selfish with my sexual expression. So even if you can, 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 can do that without illicit thoughts or without the use of images or something, right, it's still teaching me to be selfish. 
and to not be self-giving with my sexuality, which, which thus goes against the very design of God's design for sex. How do we remain sexually pure? The Bible does speak frequently on sexual immorality. I mean, from the very beginning. Like we're, it's, it has been present throughout history and will be. So, so what do we do? Because it's, sometimes it feels like a lost cause, right? It's just, it's like, how do we even, what? And, and so whatever, you, whatever your background is, whatever you came here today thinking, my hope for you would be from this moment forward that if there's sexual sin to confess and free from your life, please do not leave it in the darkness. It won't just go away on its own. Satan has no problem playing the long game. No problem waiting 20 years from now until the most inopportune time to rear its ugly head and destroy your life and effectiveness around you. Don't play the long game. Or, I'm sorry, he'll play the long game. Don't, don't wait. Right, so, so whatever you came in here with, my hope is that we will confess and expose to the light, repent, and then that we will look to God's design for sex. Trust, choose to trust his design. Commit to his design, to holy sexuality. Resolve, dig your heels in for what is right, for holiness, to abide in Jesus, for apart from him we can do nothing. Fill your mind and your heart and your life with more and more and more and more and more and more and more Jesus. Romans 13, 15-ish says to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore make no provision for the flesh. The more Jesus you put in, the less capacity there literally is for other things. If I put more Jesus in my brain, there's less space, literally, fundamentally, physically, for other nonsense to fill my brain, right? Put in, abide in Jesus. Are we going to take holiness and following Jesus seriously? Right? Radical Christianity, it, for us, is not being tied to a, a, a stake and lit on fire, most likely. Radical Christianity, for us, is putting off the selfish ways of sin and putting in Jesus, it's looking different with our time than everyone else. It's looking different than what we watch and listen to than everyone else. It's choosing sexuality different than, than, than everyone else. It's not so much the persecution, martyrdom. It's living differently. That's what it is most likely for us. Are we going to be committed to being a disciple of Jesus? When Jesus said, you want to follow me? Great. Take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow me. We do not get to follow Jesus and go our own way at the same time. End of discussion. What are we gonna do? Abide in Jesus. Three, put real Christian community in your life. Create it where it doesn't exist. Take the courageous step of just being vulnerable and honest. L look around you. You don't have to lock eyes or anything. That could be weird casually just kind of look around you, right? I don't know, there's 50, 60 some odd people in here and who knows however many that are gone for the weekend. There, we need each other. There's people. Build community with one another. We will not win alone. We won't. We, we won't make it alone. Four, put in godly disciplines. Right? Discipline your life discipline your life with you know practices of, of, of worship of reading of community of, of fasting of solitude right disciplines that point us toward Jesus put in more godly disciplines and I think well I don't know what number I'm on now five maybe this is kind of a repeat understand that sex is not the end the goal for your life is not sex if you live your life uh, uh, every day as a virgin, you will not have less of life than someone who has had sex. 
it, it is not your identity. It is not the end. God did not create us to be sexual people. God created us to reflect his image, whether that's through sex or not. But the world is going to tell you if you don't have sex, you're, you're, you're missing. You're missing life. You're not who you are. No, it's not the end. There are greater things than sex. And according to the Bible, that's intimacy with him. That's being near to God. Sex outside of God's design moves us away from him. So therefore, it's not better. Look to his design. Trust his design for sex. If there's anything in our life that we're like, I have to have this to be complete, and that this is anything other than the name of Jesus, it's idolatry. It's, it's, it's not what we're created. We're created to know him, to reflect him, whether that's through sex or not. God's design for sex is to be a good and pleasurable expression and reminder of covenant love between a husband and wife. It's a, it's a good gift, but it's not ultimate. Let's commit to, to his design. There's life found in following him. There's destruction found when we try to go it our own way. For his glory, for, for our good, for the good of those around us. May we trust him with his design for sex. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.